Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about Lucy, which is Jamaica Kincaid's 1990 novella about a young West Indian woman who comes to the United States to work as an au pair for a white bougie family. So uh, Tristan, why Lucy? Yeah, I love Jamaica Kincaid. I first discovered her writing when I was teaching a common core course for first year undergrads that assigned a small place, which is her book length essay on tourism and colonialism. And Katie, Katie was my TA for that. that you had course. a great TA. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> Helps a lot, actually. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's just such a scathing and hilarious indictment of capitalism, racism, corruption, clueless rich white dipshits who vacation in the West Indies. Like, so just check out this bit of the essay that I'm going to quote. Every native everywhere lives a life of overwhelming and crushing banality and boredom and desperation and depression. And every deed, good and bad, is an attempt to forget this. Every native would like to find a way out. Every native would like a rest. Every native would like a tour. But some natives, most natives in the world, cannot go anywhere. They are too poor. So when the natives see you, the tourists, they envy you. They envy your ability to leave your own banality and boredom. They envy your ability to turn their own banality and boredom into a source of pleasure for yourself. Like, goddamn, you know, yeah. it's, it's amazing. It's, it is. It's just, okay. it's, it's fantastic. You know, it's, it is definitely the kind of like Jeremy Ad tradition, but like extremely pointed and with a lot of material substance to it. And yeah, as an 18th centuryist, I'm always here, going to be here for a scathing essay. Uh, this probably woke up as a surprise, but students have a tough time <laughs> with a small place in Jamaica Kincaid because they kind of feel personally attacked and they're right, frankly. <laughs> I mean, uh, honestly, the notion of being personally attacked by a book, like, that's awesome. But also yeah. sort of funny. Like, it's a, yeah. it's a, you know, it's a book, right? No, exactly. I think that's why. I mean, I, you know, because this was a common syllabus, I didn't put it uh, on there, although I'm glad it is on there. And, and having read it, I, I would have. But, you know, I think that one thing that like wrestling was or thinking about something like that is, yeah, I mean, I think it makes you think about that question. Like, what? Wh why do I feel personally attacked by this? And is that the right response to reading, uh, you know, a work of, uh, yeah, a work of nonfiction or fiction. But, you know, and, and I think out of that, students do come to see that it's really hard to think about structures and your own complicity in them. And also that structures kind of don't give a fuck about individual intention, which is Kincaid's <laughs> whole point at the end. So yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it could be a tough read for, for students, but I think it, it you know, it, they, it ends in a really productive place. And yeah, I've just been into Kincaid ever since that at teaching experience. In my scholarship, I'm by no means a Caribbeanist, although I did, you know, I did publish an article on the 18th century Caribbean, but it's kind of, you know, it, it, it yeah, it, it just feels a little bit distant the way I, the way I come at that. But I have been teaching Caribbean lit more and more precisely for the conversations and through lines it takes up that we see in 18th century Atlantic literature. And Kincaid's an amazing writer for doing that. And I think just an amazing writer generally. And I'm super stoked to talk about Lucy with you guys. I mean, I it's a totally different context, but I do find it interesting, having just talked about John Okada, that there are genuinely nice white liberals in those <laughs> two books. Like, it's not even yeah. about niceness, right? Like, that's totally beside the point. And that's yeah. something that I, want, I understand, of course, how that would make people feel uncomfortable, but that's like, it's more trenchant a critique for me when they are nice. <laughs> 
Exactly right, because and, and you're uh, that's an interesting comparison that, but you know that I I hadn't thought of, but it's 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 a really good one off of the last episode. You're right, it does. It, like I think that that when the 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 person is like a total through and through shithead, then I think the like the point about how like individual agency really has fuck all to do with the structure can be it can be sort of hard to separate that. Whereas like yeah, when you're it's like okay, the pr- fact that this person is nice or feels bad about this in like a clear way does not actually fix any of the problem you know right i mean and that's i don't know that's part of why i love this yeah yeah it's the only way you can tell it's hollow yeah to think of that in terms of individuals yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <sighs> anyway so i've read kincaid before too and i have but i hadn't read this and unsurprisingly it's completely great i wanted to read it just to read it because i've all of a sudden found myself like reading novels and enjoying them lately and i'm not sure where that came from um (laughs) i'm always interested in a book about mothers and children or mothers and daughters and i am not just i'm not doing edible hours here i just want to make that clear like my mom is awesome that's not there's no uh biographical (laughs) criticism happening here um yeah just disclaimer right disclaimer disclaimer, no it's important it's like i don't want to but again like personalize this psychologize this (laughs) Right. So not it's not Oedipal, but it's a cool thing to think about. I'm also into books that have some like white people cringe. And no. like one of my favorite <laughs> tropes of both white people not acknowledging cringe, but also doing cringe is fake Indians. I'm such a fan. Um, and the white woman here, here has Indian blood. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 23 and me. Coming through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... Kincaid is really good at that because she doesn't try Okada's the same. She doesn't try to move off the cringe. She like stays there. And it's part of something that I just like love technically, but also like conceptually. I also have been like in a deep thought chain about love, partly because my advisor just died and they thought and wrote about love a lot, as in the gift that keeps on taking. And there's nothing in this book. Where love, which is a word she uses, isn't tinged by like both high key active loathing and <laughs> low key annoyance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like so cool. I just like that both things are there, right? So the sort of like low buzz of irritability plus like I fucking hate you, and I'd like to say yeah. the meanest thing to you that I can possibly think of. Yeah, um, it's cool. And I also like love that this ending is about the sort of like aloneness. The character Lucy says, I was alone in the world. It was not a small accomplishment. I thought I would die doing it. I was not happy, but that seemed too much to ask for. And I like, I love that. I find it actually like it's ambivalence deeply fulfilling for me. Like as a reader. Yeah. Like that ending is it? It's like sad, but it, I don't know. It's not. It's not just sad. It, it. 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 Yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll get we'll get to that. I do just want to say though, and th- like, this is on like like Kincaid staying with the cringe. This is on like a much more superficial point than the one you're making. But I just wanted to throw out this story. Um, I saw a Jamaica Kincaid speak at publicly. She was on a panel about. It was kind of a reflection on Derek Walcott, like after he had, he had recently died. And I won't get into all the stories that she told, which were very 
uh, kind of cringe. But like she, yeah, like she definitely is a person who does not give a flying fuck about like what others are thinking or doing. That's and so I just cool. she's she's sitting on this stage and she just notices there's this bouquet, you know, just a decorative bouquet next to her, and she just pulls out a flower and just starts smelling it, and then just sits there for the rest of the evening, just clutching this flower. And it's like it does not care at all that people like what Eddie. It's like why are you doing that? It's it was great. It was amazing. But I mean, good for her. I like yeah. yeah, yeah. I I like I don't like discomfort, but I like the sort of disclosure. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. No, doing what you want is revealing, yeah. and it's cool. <laughs> I wanted to read this again for the podcast because I've read it before, and it's great, and I read it as an undergraduate, so I figured I should know more things now and get more things out of it. And one thing I got out of it was a cool margin note that says, um, fake people, the system. <laughs> wait, 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 when you told when you told me There's that one mar- other one. When you told me that about that margin note, was that your margin note from No. Under- oh, okay. All right. No, this was somebody else's. Oh yeah, fake people judgmental the system. Okay. So but I, I imagine that was fairly on par with my original um take on it. I know that that's like everybody in a novel is in fact a fake person. I acknowledge that, but like, oh no. These feel very <laughs> realized cringe characters to me. Yeah, no, this is – I, I t- took the note to mean fake bitches. <laughs> oh. That's how – yeah. But they're not. That's, like fake friends, you know. But, the, but they think they, they're doing they're, real. Well, the margin note that I have <laughs> – Disagrees. <laughs> disagrees. Uh. So I don't know what to do here. I don't know how to solve this. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the authority in this circumstance? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's really no way to tell. But I do uh hard agree with with you both about the substantive points related to this book and how fucking cool Jamaica Kincaid is. My experience reading it was this overwhelming sense that it is one of the most divorced books of all time. <laughs> It just makes you feel like you're getting a divorce, like all of the characters are getting divorced from themselves and each other. People want shit you can't even get a divorce from, <laughs> like like your mom and also everyone's mom and all of your friends and also daffodils. Yeah. And <laughs> fucking daffodils. And we love daff- we love hating a cheating husband. Mm-hmm. We do we do love that too. We do love that too. It is, as you said, perfect. It's like perfectly biting. It's just like getting nipped in the ass constantly, but in like a great way. (laughs) And I also love that Lucy is about a 19-year-old girl who is just unabashedly pissed. And when she wants to say something mean, it's like the Mortal Kombat finishing move where you rip the spine out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just every. Just every time. And I uh, can't believe no one said I love Lucy yet, but I love Lucy. <laughs> yeah. um, we do. Uh, we do. We do. <laughs> There's our outro right there. That's so good. It's so good. It also has one of the most la- uh, laugh out loud funny scenes that I have read in quite some time, which is uh, when Lucy gets a camera and this couple's about to get the the couple's about to get a divorce so she walks in after a walk and the couple fights every time the kids leave 
And uh, so the children ran in to greet them. This is a quote. I followed carrying my camera, which I now took with me everywhere. And when I saw them apart yet closely together, Mariah's eyes red from tears, a crooked smile on her face as if she were a child trying to put up a brave front. I knew that the end was here. The ruin was in front of me. For a reason that will never be known to me, I said, say cheese and took a picture. <laughs> Lewis said, She's so mean. This is, this is a stepbrother's bit. Megan and I were just talking about yeah. stepbrothers yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. When, when, when the brother, uh, uh, when Richard Jenkins announces they're getting a divorce and Will Ferrell and John C. Riley start bawling and Adam Scott's like, uh, I got to capture this. <laughs> <laughs> this is our second stepbrothers conversation in two days like no yeah. kidding it's a, it's a topic it's a topic it just comes so many conversations yesterday we were talking yeah. about andrea bocelli and it came up it's really a movie for all circumstances and and good good class politics amazing oh it's adam mckay right like so of yeah, course yeah. it does yeah, yeah. stepbrothers for all seasons but yeah, no, it's like that scene is so funny, but it's also totally like it should be gutting, yeah. and it is like yeah, it is. It's sort both. Of, you know, it's both. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's both at the same time. Yeah, it's everything, and I think that yeah, no, genre wise, it's really fascinating. The prose is gorgeous, and I think what it really does is gives you the feeling of walking around as an exposed nerve, and like everybody else is too, but they are anesthetized, so instead of actually feeling any of the pain, they're just sort of confused and blundering. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think that it's just sort of perfect. Is there a genre of this or am I just only thinking of one other work, which is the Ousmane Semben movie, La Noire de, which is Black Girl. Do you guys know that movie from the 60s? Uh, no. It's amazing. It's about an au pair who's from Senegal. Mm-hmm. And it's like gorgeous African cinema. If you have a chance to see it, see it. Yeah. No, I, I, I want to see it, particularly having just read this. So today we're talking about the sort of like genres of race and racialization, gender, women's relationships, love, and the relationship between the colony and the, mm-hmm. the colonizer. So tell us, if you don't mind, what happens in this book? I don't think this is a book, maybe weirdly, that is driven all that much by the main plot line, which is pretty straightforward, kind of kind of skeletal. Yeah, I mean, we have a young West Indian woman who comes to the U.S. Uh, to work, meets rich white dumbasses, has a lot of sex, uh, and then gets a different job at the end. Like, that's it. <laughs> right? She quits the dumbasses and learns to take pictures. Yeah, yes, exactly. That's the, And not of people crying and divorced. Well, that and other things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that sort of very rough skeleton serves as the occasion for a lot of like musings and reflections, insights, digressions about Lucy's childhood that take us back to the West Indies. I'm going to quote from the text more extensively than we typically do, because I think close reading around some of those reflections and digressions is kind of essential to figuring out an account of the book. Whereas I just say the plot again, it's not, there's not all that much plot. It's not that that's kind of not how it works. So the novella is divided into five sections in the first, which is called poor visitor. We meet Lucy, who has just arrived in the United States to an unspecified city, Um, though I think we can take a cue from Kincaid's own biography, which I'll say more about in the context piece and say this is like the New York metropolitan area somewhere. Um, I'm kind of thinking like maybe sort of like a Tony Westchester suburb or something like that. 
And and she's come to live with a bougie white couple named Lewis and Mariah. And they're four blonde daughters. All of them are blonde. <laughs> Everyone is very blonde. <laughs> we get some important exposition in this section on a few key points. One is the fact that all of this, you know, this in, in largest terms is, is new to Lucy, uh, very much down to the weather, uh, which sounds kind of like a banal point, but I, I actually don't think it is. Something I, Kincaid does beautifully in a lot of her work is to tie impressions of geography and climate. So like the first time someone from the tropics experiences winter or dusk to reflections on colonialism and capital. So like how tropical heat is actually not primarily so you can go to the beach and get a nice tan at your at your sandals resort, but actually presents some serious challenges for living on uh, while it is also like enticing and nurturing and lush and kind of sexy. Also, at a, at a personal level, uh, how something that is maybe objectionable or deeply challenging to live with becomes in memory an object of affection. And, and we see that here. Um, so this is a direct quote. The sun was shining, but the air was cold. It was the middle of January, after all. But I did not know that the sun could shine and the air remain cold. No one had ever told me. I was no longer in a tropical zone, and this realization now entered my life like a flow of water, dividing formerly dry and solid ground, creating two banks one of which was my past, so familiar and predictable that even my unhappiness then made me happy now just to think of it, the other my future, a gray blank, an overcast seascape on which rain was falling and no boats were in sight. I was no longer in a tropical zone and I felt cold inside and out, the first time such a sensation had come over me. So two big things we learn in this chapter. One is the tension and anger Lucy feels toward her family back in the West Indies, which is a revelation that builds out of the reflection on climate. Again, that's a pretty classic Kincaid move uh, where, you know, we weave between the general and the particular over and over again. And, the, it, you know, her writing generally kind of forces us to kind of to, to do that move over and over again. This is a very like, sorry, guys, this is sort of a modernist technique. This is a quite sort of like atmospherics producing reflection, right? Like this is all over Virginia Woolf or somebody, right? Like this is, she's a quite, again, like technical writer. She has like utter command over these sort of like modernist techniques. Oh, no, I totally agree with that. And, and you're right. It is, it is a modernist, uh, it's a modernist technique for sure. It's not unlike the awakening really mm -mm, in mm. many ways. That's true. I just think she's, uh, I like this character more. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, much, yeah, much, much yeah. more. Yeah. <laughs> like her not giving a fuck is so much more compelling. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. But you're right. Yeah, it has that like, especially in the in the sort of like climate atmospherics. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. Yeah. Well, and, and like, like it does. And I, it's hard since I mean, this a small place is the text that I've read like several times. It's hard for me to kind of like keep those two apart. But I mean, one thing that that essay makes over and over again is like, yeah, tourists love Antigua over the uh, over some other islands because it's always sunny and never rains like. Yeah, it never fucking rains. That's a problem, you know. Like so, but yeah. So uh, Lucy finds herself homesick and is surprised by that because, quote, I longed to be with people whose smallest, most natural gesture would call up in, in me such a rage that I longed to see them all dead at my feet. <laughs> <laughs> so I miss the way you piss me off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. mom. Yeah, mom. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the other big thing we learn is that Lewis and Mariah are risible bougie dipshits. They start calling Lucy poor visitor in a creepy and condescending way because <gasps> she seems distant from them and not immediately in love with them in their class position. Like, how could she? 
Lewis tells some weird ass story about his uncle in Canada who raised monkeys. What the fuck? <laughs> like, yeah, what? What? Yeah, it just it was. Yeah, I, very, I had no idea what the hell he thought he was doing with that. And Lucy responds by telling them about her dream where Lewis is chasing her around while she's naked. Which is only correct response. <laughs> only only, <laughs> only correct response to the story. Uh, so the, the, here's another quote. There, I meaning Lewis and Mariah's two yellow heads swam toward each other and in unison bobbed up and down. Lewis made a clucky noise that said, poor, poor visitor. And Mariah said, Dr. Freud for visitor. And I wondered why she said that, for I did not know who Dr. Freud was. Uh, then they laughed in a soft, kind way. I had meant by telling them my dream that I had taken them in because only people who were very important to me had ever shown up in my dreams. I did not know if they understood understood yeah <laughs> because talking about themselves is totally natural to them for, for yes. real like right and, and but but then yeah and, and so how are people like naturally blonde though like how is that genetically possible that those people would still exist <laughs> yeah where there's no sun you have to be very you have to catch it all you get <laughs> yeah, it. You exactly. get, it's like pokemon up in the north because they yeah. like i can i feel like this deep discomfort with my own ethnic taint around naturally blonde people i cannot even imagine this is like the character totally like exposes that all the time it's one of those things too like uh like evolutionarily you have to wonder like was it actually like oh that yeah like just being able to soak up that much sun is is valuable when you're living like 60 degrees north latitude or if it's one of those things that's like it's because you were in fucking scandinavia it didn't matter but like you try to go as far south as like i don't know switzerland and oh i'm gonna turn into a fucking lobster you know like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like you, you get a lot of suspicious moles and freckles going on if you leave that region <laughs> that's true <laughs> exactly yeah so anyway so we have like this mutual misinterpretation maybe mutual although i think it's you know we're much more critical about like lewis and mariah's side you know i think the point we're getting they just can't imagine a perspective that isn't that of their bougie metropolitan and, and white i mean i think very that's important you know race certainly here world and yeah kincaid returns to that theme again and again we see it a lot in the next section, which is entitled Mariah, and it's all about how Mariah is a well-meaning but racist and pretty clueless dipshit. <laughs> this is the chapter where they go to the house on the Great Lakes. It's unspecified which one, which is you know in the Midwest. It's like, tell us, is it you know, weird? You know, it's a great one. Yeah, it's in Michigan. Like, where is it? Where is it? Um, Mariah grew up in this house. There's a ton in this chapter on racial and class difference that Lucy feels, but Mariah seems utterly capable of comprehending. I'll just, it, it, yeah. There's a lot of scenes we could talk about. I'll, I'll just give two examples. So the first, which I love, Mariah is extremely keen that lucy sees daffodils in the spring lucy has never seen a daffodil it's not a tropical plant but she does recall having uh, to memorize a poem which is unnamed in the text but it's it's william wordsworth i wandered lonely as a cloud when she was a student at the queen victoria's girl school back back home on on her island recalling how as a girl she was told wordsworth would have loved how she recited it lucy says inside i was making a vow to erase from my mind line by line every word of that poem <laughs> <laughs> so yeah lmao owed right but uh so lucy finally sees the stupid fucking flowers uh mariah has made a big to-do of this like she's blindfolded her for the surprise of seeing these fucking daffodils it's really really dorky and lucy okay so she sees the daffodils and then she says Mariah, do you realize that at 10 years of age, I had to learn by heart a long poem about some flowers I would not see in real life until I was 19? 
As soon as I said this, I felt sorry that I had cast her beloved daffodils in a scene she had never considered, a scene of conquered and conquests, a scene of brutes masquerading as angels and angels portrayed as brutes. This woman who hardly knew me loved me, and she wanted me to love this thing, a grove brimming over with daffodils in bloom that she loved also. Her eyes sank back in her head as if they were protecting themselves, as if they were taking a rest after some unexpected hard work. Yeah. It wasn't her fault. It wasn't my fault. But nothing could change the fact that where I, we, where she saw beautiful flowers, I saw sorrow and bitterness. Like, yeah, just fantastic stuff. I mean, just, just like really, I mean, it, it, in some ways so mundane, but that it like encodes so much both historic, like grandly historical and also deeply personal stuff at the same time, which again, I think that that's one of the reasons why I'm such a fan of Kincaid is her ability to cut to, to sort of make those moves. And this like tightly coiled spring of rage that yes, is yeah. just like her, that character, you know, that it's like these fucking flowers <laughs> fuck them also fuck you and i know well she's, she's not quite like that because well it is but she's also simultaneously like i didn't mean to hurt her feelings but fuck you yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like i didn't mean to hurt her feelings but i also don't give a shit yeah that yeah I like, did. like <laughs> yeah exactly because you because you blindfolded me like we're in 50 shades of gray and made me look at a goddamn <laughs> flower like a weirdo yeah no i yeah. i mean that like I, and i actually do think that like uh, the um a sexual current right with with some weird sort of like uh it, it, like weird because like not sort of like mutually agreed <laughs> like you know domination um things is part of that but I, one thing i did quote uh which actually might build on that is as lucy says so like yeah the flower were beautiful and all i wanted to do was take a sigh that just like mode that's my favorite i can't believe you didn't say it's like my favorite moment (laughs) i know yeah yeah i should i should i should have pulled that quote too yeah that's great but so okay so in that scene we set up a tension that really comes to a head at the lake house where mariah uh megan i know you want to talk about this oh my god i can't wait says that she wanted to tell Lucy she, quote, has Indian blood, but I feel you will take it the wrong way. <laughs> like, Jesus fucking Christ. Why? Like, Why would she take it the wrong? What about that would be offensive? I, yeah. What if you didn't say it then? <laughs> <Yeah>. what if- <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe that's a good sign to keep because it to your fucking Because nothing makes self. her feel fucking weird about talking about herself. Yeah, because she's never had. She's yeah, she's never she's never had to. So Lucy, whose grandmother is is a Carib Indian, tells Mariah. All along, I have been wondering how you got to be the way you are. And the book follows, which is, this is like, like Mariah is like devastated in this scene. And, and the book follows with Mariah says, I have Indian blood in me and underneath everything I could swear she says it as if she were announcing her possession of a trophy. How do you get to be the sort of victor who can claim to be the vanquished also? Which Mike yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah exactly and that's another like okay that's like amazing because you can't move off of the cringe right no and in that scene also like she goes to hug her and she like ducks and she gets air you know like <laughs> yeah really yeah. like it's 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 there are so many layers of it yeah oh, and there's not got it yeah I, I mean i i i could just read the fucking novel like that would be one way to <laughs> no totally but, uh, 
there's yeah like a very close to that scene like uh because mariah's been fishing on the lake and she's got these stupid fish and she's like like of time to feed the minions and lucy's like did i hear that right maybe she said millions millions but, yeah but the thing is and like like i that's the thing it's like you you hear people use that expression and not really reflect on like what it means like that what a minion would mean you know but but like lucy's like no i i fucking know what like i mean i that's i don't know what like resonance you think you're saying with that but i am hearing something very different Surely you're not implying that your children toil endlessly for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Surely you're not implying that they're yellow and have little overalls on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds closer. Yeah. yeah. I love, I mean, like, Carib is, I have no idea. They're not recognized as a tribe, but, like, every time I see the word, I think of the bastardization that is Caliban and how, mm. like, interesting that is. That's all. That was, like, just a non sequitur. I apologize. Wait, ca- Caliban comes from Carib? Is that, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, because it's Caravan. Car- the, okay, as yeah. in Caribbean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. I and I have taught the Tempest in a post-colonial class, and I, I will remember that for next time. That's yeah. Although probably all the, like, Poco people seem to think that Caliban is Taino, but I'm not going to I don't it's like what is somebody really I don't a character in a fucking play I don't know yeah well I also don't I mean how that William Shakespeare uh knew enough to (laughs) to be smart about how he was uh, you know how how he was depicted uh someone from from the West Indies um yeah okay so the next few chapters tell us more about Lucy's past uh her conflict with her mom and about a series of sexual relationships she has while working for Mariah and Lewis Chapter three is called The Tongue and starts with a teenage memory of making out with a boy back in the West Indies. This brings us back into the present where we learn that Lewis and Mariah's marriage is falling apart. Lucy kind of intuits this before she actually sees Lewis making out with Mariah's racist best friend, Dinah, because she sees, uh, this is a direct quote, Lewis licked Mariah's neck like a baller move, man. (laughs) What is this? There's so much neck licking. (laughs) I mean, this this isn't like a sex scene that's being described like this. They're like in the kitchen with their kids. And anyway, Mm -hmm. it was was weird. It's worse. It is worse. And it is one of those like cringe moments that Kincaid loves so much, you know. But yeah, like so. Okay, so uh, Lewis licked Mariah's neck and she leaned against him and sighed and shuddered at the same time. They both stood there as if stuck together. But to look at them, they seemed as if they couldn't be more apart if they were on separate planets. Okay, Uh, so we kind of see where things are headed there. Lucy starts a brief relationship with a man named Hugh, whose chief attraction seems to be that he's extremely basic and average. Uh, like, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> his name is Hugh. Like she says, I liked his, I liked his mouth. I imagined it kissing me everywhere. It was just an ordinary mouth. I liked his hands and imagined them caressing me everywhere. They were not unusual in any way. <laughs> right? like, so it's just blankness is, is really part of the attraction here regular <laughs> he's, he's just regular like oh i i started seeing someone what are they like they're, they're regular they're regular <laughs> yeah. regular just regulation man just you're a guy the form, a man like, you know. the form of a man Stand- factory setting <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's, he's, yeah. he's got a face um uh, lips but, two eyes and nose and a mouth yeah <laughs> the average number of heads yeah i mean that that no that's good that's that's good but yeah 
as with a lot of sexual encounters in this book and kind of with its plot generally, the emphasis seems to be more on the associations that like the Hugh relationship evokes. You know, we get her reflecting on puberty, on how her mother told her never to side with the man when couples are fighting, on another sexual relationship and contentious friendship. She's begun with an Irish American woman named Peggy that will come under some strain later when Lucy starts dating uh, this artist that Peggy tells her is, quote, a pervert. We had talk- There's some Gogad associations there that mm-hmm. I, might be worth talking about. But, you know, we've also got a lot of other stuff that we can think about. Okay, the last two sections, Cold Heart and Lucy, give us more on all the fun sex Lucy is having. And and I I actually do think there is a kind of like joyousness to these adventures, which which is which is, you know, in addition to just being fun, is I think actually also sort of like very thematically important, in part because she's having this fun alongside the collapse of Mariah and Lewis's marriage. (laughs) But, But probably most importantly, we get a lot more on Lucy's relationship with her mother. So we'll talk about this, but critics have definitely read Lucy's sexual adventures and the mother conflict is closely related. Lucy's mom had been sending all these letters to the United States, which Lucy refuses to open. They're just in this growing pile on her dresser. But finally, Lucy's mom gets another woman from their island who is also working in the same city as Lucy to deliver the news that Lucy's father is dead. One explanation for why Lucy is so angry at her mother, and I, and I, and I think it's a substantial explanation, is that Lucy feels like her education and possibilities were basically foreclosed once her mother had sons. Um, like I think Lucy was nine when her mom and the, the next, uh, your mom had the next kid. Um, and that she feels that that really changed her relationship with her and also her, the future possibilities that she was allowed to sort of imagine at that moment. In any case, like an article I'll talk about in in the context piece sees this one line as central to Lucy's strategies of resistance and at the heart of how she interprets her mother and the belief structure her mother imposed on her. So this is what Lucy tells us about the letter that she writes back to her mom. I said that she had acted like a saint, but that since I was living in this real world, I had really wanted just a mother. I reminded her that my whole upbringing had been devoted to preventing me from becoming a slut. I then gave a brief description of my personal life, offering each detail as evidence that my upbringing had been a failure, and that, in fact, life as a slut was quite enjoyable. Thank you very much. Fuck yeah, good for her. She has so many moments of like absolute triumph that it's just like, fuck yeah. She didn't have to like, you know, she didn't have to go back and be like, fuck, I should have said that. Mm -mm, She gets to say it. Yeah, no, she, she does. <laughs> she said it all. Yeah, she, no, it's it's great. And then she finishes with, I would not come home now. I said, I would not come home ever. Um, <laughs> you can't make me. <laughs> so I'll wrap up the summary now, because uh, I, I think we have more than enough to talk about the novel's big themes. I'll just note that at the end of the novel, Peggy and Lucy are living in an apartment together. They're, they're growing increasingly apart. Lucy does they're like they have nothing in common. It's just I think they're they're sort of they were drawn to each other both because they both sort of like feel a kind of shared outsideriness status, but had like very, very little uh, in common beyond that. Lucy does tell us that her mom named her Lucy after Lucifer. Like her, this is a- oh, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it's great. And I'm pretty sure this was just was supposed to be a lie thrown out in anger, but it's one that Lucy's like, oh, no, I kind of like this. So her mom says like, yeah, Satan himself. What a botheration for the moment you were conceived. And yeah, like Lucy, again, line set in anger. Lucy loves it, though. And I think it's worth probably thinking about in the context of Paradise Lost. Like Kincaid's talked about Milton a bit. And, you know, just Satan as the rebellious sort of hero by one reading of that. But generally, Lucy is getting along. She has an increasing feeling of independence. Uh, but the novel ends on this sad line that I think is, uh, you know, I, I don't know. There's a lot going there, and, and it's just an interesting place for it to wrap up. So that's the last thing I'll, I'll quote from the novel. 
I saw the book Mariah had given me. Um, so when Lucy had quit her au pair job, it was on the night table next to my bed. Beside it lay my fountain pen full of beautiful blue ink. I picked up both and I opened the book. At the top of the page, I wrote my full name, Lucy Josephine Potter. At the sight of it, many thoughts rushed through me, but I could write down only this. I wish I could love someone so much that I would die from it. And then as I looked at this sentence, a great wave of shame came over me and I wept and wept so much that the tears fell on the page and caused all the words to become one great big blur. So that's where we end. I'm only just going to do, because it's like a matter of personal interest, is that she also like takes up photography and she there's this moment where she says like, oh, and I signed up for a class, but I didn't really know why, but I, I wanted to. And it's like, oh, she actually has this like, besides like fucking average men, she also gets to take <laughs> pictures, which is like kind of a lovely thing that she just enjoys. Yeah. And and also, yeah. I mean, this this also in some ways follows uh, from our conversation. For, no, no, boy. She likes the non-instrumentality of that, right? Like she's like, yeah, no, I yeah, wasn't yeah. studying to be a professional photographer. I just wanted to do it. I, which I think given that like, I mean, her whole, like the whole like reason why she has like a visa to be in the United, like, the, like, actually, like there's a lot of like a nurse. Yeah, like there's a state apparatus here. Like it's like you must like be doing these things to become a legible producer. And she's just like, no, fuck that. <laughs> you know, like so, which is great. It is, yeah. yeah. Okay, so will you give us some context on the book and on Kincaid? Definitely. So uh, Jamaica Kincaid was born Elaine Potter Richardson in Antigua in 1949. And her biography in many ways does mirror Lucy's. Like, So Lucy is definitely fictionalized. And I don't think it's a particularly productive time as a reader to get hyper obsessed with the overlaps between Kincaid and her protagonist. But it is a comparison that Kincaid seems to invite, I think, and including like how she has talked about this novel in interviews. You know, I mean, so for instance, Kincaid gives Lucy one of her birth names, Lucy Josephine Potter. Potter is the middle name of Kincaid's birth name. Like Lucy, Kincaid moved to the United States to work as an au pair and attend college in the late 1960s. Like Lucy, Kincaid had a very contentious relationship with her mother and with with Antigua, where she grew up. Again, like Lucy, Kincaid has traced the attention and opportunities given to her much younger brothers at her expense um, as the girl child of the family at the source of that contentiousness with her, her mother and her family more broadly. In Kincaid's case, she was basically like the you know the actual <laughs> by you know in, in the world uh, Jamaica Kincaid. She was basically estranged from her family and Antigua for two decades um, when she refused to send money home. <laughs> Which good for her. That's great. That that's a very Lucy move that's right wild. there. Although Lucy, yeah, it is. <laughs> although Lucy does actually send the money, but then she's like, "Fuck you! I'm never coming back." And like, so while a lot of readers, myself very much included, love her writing in part for its trenchant and expansive critiques of colonialism and empire as structures that continue to be perpetuated within late capital, Kincaid has been criticized for kind of bashing and like rejecting the Caribbean. When when she wrote A Small Place in 1988, the Antiguan government, and it might be worth remembering that Antigua had only formally won independence from the UK in 1981, so just a few years before, they were extremely pissed. And according to to uh, J.B. Bosun, uh, Jamaica Kincaid writing memory, writing back to the mother. They unofficially banned her from deal, which I don't know what that means. But yeah, no, what literally? What does like? How do you unofficially ban someone? Yeah, I mean, she just, just we're not going to like it. Cancel. I, That's what that is. It's cancel culture. <laughs> I've read places that Kincaid says that she was like she was afraid for her safety to go back. You know, so well, I don't, right, I, don't know. I don't know. Oh, okay. but, but I mean, so also why yeah, are no. people? from any culture not allowed to hate the place they come from. 
I, I mean, that's an excellent question. And I don't think that like, just because you come from a formerly colonized space, well, I, I, I want to formally, you know, let's, let's not, let's not align the continuation of, of empire. But I mean, I, I think just because you are from a space like that does not preclude your right to be kind of salty about the place, you know? Like, that just seems like wild to me that like, why can't yeah. you be mad? That doesn't mean that like, we as readers are, are like rejecting something. We just, you can be mad. What what else is there? It's one of the great. It's one of the things that makes having a place you come from worthwhile. Yeah, is yeah, being able to hate it. Yeah, yeah. It, and, and I mean, honestly, who doesn't have an ambivalent relationship with the place that they're from? I, you know, I mean, like, if you have only a positive relationship with the place you're from, you're kind of a homer dipshit, you know? <laughs> like you're, you're like, you are a peaked in high school kind of guy to me when you yeah, love the yeah, place yeah. you're from, you know? It's yeah. just like, it's, I mean, n- not frequently. I see them on Facebook. People who come from Eugene, Oregon, the place I should be talking shit about all the time, but don't yeah. want to think about, um, who are like, no, it's a great place to raise kids. I'm just like, because i was a kid there and i think it was unbearable do you see how i turned out (laughs) i have a phd and i'm a success daughter of yes human man and wife (laughs) um well and it also might be my phil my philadelphia sympathies that it's just so far to me that you wouldn't talk shit about where you're from like but if someone else talks shit about where you're from now that's you know then it's fucking on it's on it's like i will shit on the great northeast as much as i want but don't you you new york asshole say shit you know like (laughs) no no. i don't want to hear it about new jersey Right. Yeah, exactly. But I, so actually I'll, I'll give some like, uh, some quotes from Kincaid that, that may further explain why Antigans were, were upset. So yeah. So Kincaid, she explains the fact that she adopted the pen name Jamaica Kincaid in part as an effort to get enough distance from both her family and from Antigua to be able to write. So this is a 2002 interview, um, in the Missouri review that, that we'll link to. And the interviewer, uh, Kay Benetti asked her if she thinks she had to leave Antigua to become a writer. And, and here's what Kincaid says. Oh, absolutely. It's no accident that most West Indian writers do not live in the West Indies all the time. It's the source of their art, but they can't live there. The place is full of the most sewer-like corruption you ever saw. The ones who live there become obsessed with politics and almost always stop writing. And you can't blame them, you know. There is simply no way to stay there and write. People there don't really read. They have cable television, thanks to America. You couldn't make a living there. Uh, You couldn't be supported economically to begin with but you wouldn't be supported spiritually either. These are not places that support people. I was attempting to do this thing that, as far as I know, no one in Antigua had attempted to do. Part of the reason I changed my name was so they wouldn't know I was writing. (laughs) I I was afraid I would be laughed at, uh, though it would not have stopped me. Nothing has made me not do what I wanted to do. So yeah, I, I think you can hear like some of uh, like why Antigans and other Caribbean writers have, have bristled sometimes and how she talks about the West Indies. But I also think it helps us to pose some questions about how Lucy the novel wants us to think about Lucy's tensions between an understanding of self and an understanding of place, like how legacies of colonialism and structural inequalities that include racism and, and misogyny and definitely capitalism come to bear on individual experience. And also, like, she's trying to shake us out of the notion that, like, the colonial subject would necessarily have, like, a romanticized relationship fundamentally or, like, essentially to the place that has been colonized. And that's, like, that I can... 
freaks people out sometimes. Yeah. No, definitely. And well, and right. And, and it's like, so then I, the, the, uh, which he writes a lot about a lot in a small place like corruption, like, yes, corruption is like a neoliberal buzzword that's used to justify like an imperial aggression against, uh, you know, the global South. At the same time, it's like there is are definitely places where there is substantial corruption. And I think as, as someone from that place, you have a right to call that out without that then suggesting that you are like perpetuating structures of empire in doing so. It's, but it, I think I also want to acknowledge it, it is fraud. I understand like where the critique comes from. I also understand like how she frames that critique and, and, and you know, how, how she gives an account of it. It's not self-interested. Her critique is not self-interested, whereas often the critique that about corruption is self-interested in being like, this is why we have to come in and kill all bunch of people and not give any money to you. Right. No, definitely. And I mean, you can also put that the, 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 like, you know, where the where corruption exists, uh, it is absolutely the result of fucked up imperial structures that, you know, that, that reward. There's no uh, corruption and, here. The CIA came in and fixed yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Don't worry about it. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So um, Kincaid uh, became a professional writer soon after her time as an au pair. In the early 1970s, she's working for places like Ms. Magazine and The Village Voice. She became friends with George W.S. Tro, who wrote a lot for the New Yorker's Talk of the Town column. And through Tro became friends with New Yorker editor William Sean, who hired her. And Kincaid wrote for the New Yorker for quite a while, including in the Talk of the Town column. Given how many shots we've taken at the New Yorker on this show, <laughs> I think this is an amazing quote from that same Missouri Review interview, where Kincaid is talking about how her initial distance from American culture generally gave her a particular perspective both on her own career and how she approached the question she writes about. I was not used to American racial attitudes, so whenever they were directed at me, I did not recognize them, and if I didn't recognize them, they were meaningless. I had no feelings about my own race, no feeling about my color. I didn't like it or not like it. I just accepted it the way I accept my eyes. I'm sure people denied me things because of the color of my skin, but I didn't know it, so I just went on. That was not my problem. I didn't know that there were very few black people writing for the New Yorker, so I wasn't troubled by that. I actually knew nothing about the New Yorker, its history or its prominence in American literature when I was taken to meet the editor. I was just a fool treading where angels feared to go. (laughs) I mean, I personally don't even like hate the journalism from the New Yorker. What I get annoyed by is the sort of like program era construction of like the, you know, like Raymond Carver, Laurie Moore, like... Yeah. Uh, dram- you know, dramatics of of the small, like oh, suburban dramas of of feeling yeah. that is like now come to be short fiction. Yeah, it, right. And, no, and, and it definitely has published a lot of like really essential journalism. I mean, it still does, but but it's it's kind of. Uh, I mean, I, I totally hear you, and also just it's it's like this. It's gross ass reputation as like what sets like kind of bourgeois American intellectual culture in a way. It's that why is the like, term middlebrow exists, right? Right. But everybody who but reads listen. it is like, I am a highbrow and not a self satisfied liberal piece of shit. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. 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 That you're making some very fair points here. You're making some very fair points. But here's something else to consider. If you want to laugh your fucking ass off, open to any one of those cartoons. 
Oh, if I want to laugh about someone's psychiatrist, about a bird that's quirky, an animal that's in a situation that you wouldn't expect, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Gary Larson wasn't available, you hit that yeah. New Yorker and you're going to belly laugh. Yeah. That's right. Like, I want to see a penguin lying on a psychiatrist's couch and Sigmund Freud says, so tell me about your mother. That's it. That's the cartoon. Right? Yeah. Yeah, jokes. <laughs> it's Nothing a joke, Tristan. <laughs> These are also the jokes. Also, Andy, Andy Borowitz, am I right? <laughs> Dude, I don't even. I'll say, I'm going to say shit. We're being recorded. I shouldn't say stuff like that out loud when there's a record of it. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, some, some nice. Love you, some the nice, New Yorker sponsors. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Um, some, some, <laughs> some nice, tote bags. <laughs> Send us tote bags. Yeah, buy, buy us an ad. We'll sell you a spot for like a million dollars or something. Uh, <laughs> but, right. But like to back to her thing about like how, uh, you know, she did, you know, she was not like conscious of, of, of race and color in the same way in the U.S. as she would be in, in Britain. Um, like the, the claim there is obviously not that racism in the United States is not an enormous problem, but rather that her experience as a West Indian, as an Antiguan, was with racism in a British colonial context, which manifests differently, according to her, than in the United States, right? Like, so yeah, so that if she says it in England, she would have, she would have been kind of forced to be constantly cognizant of race in a way that she just was not as a kind of outsider to America, the United States mm-hmm. is sort of like racial hierarchies, um, which I think is an, inter- is an interesting point. So people have written a lot about how Kincaid engages with race and colonialism. There's a ton on how she critiques or takes up, uh, redeploys materials and ideas she was exposed to growing up in, in British colonial schools. I talked about the Wordsworth reference. Again, there is some Gauguin stuff, which maybe we'll get into. A lot of people have also seen Lucy as reimagining Jane Eyre, which I thought was interesting. But this time, the governess is not just subject to classist and gendered restraints, but also colonial and racial ones. And of course, Jane Eyre, famously the bad woman in the attic, uh, the, you know, the, the, West, the West Indian woman. I just want to briefly mention two accounts that I found particularly generative as I was preparing for this. Uh, one is an article by Jennifer J. Nichols and Mellis, uh, multi-ethnic literature of the United States, which really focuses us on Lucy's status as visitor um, and what that might mean to argue that, quote, Kincaid uses mobility as a literary trope to examine the assimilative impulses that pervade U.S. feminist agendas, seen most clearly via Mariah's white bourgeois feminism. And Nichols argues this is present in all those instances where Lucy's perspective really flips or inverts the way Lewis and Mariah want to understand her. And the other piece that I found generative uh, is an article by Gary Holcomb uh, entitled Travels of a Transnational Slut, <laughs> Sexual Migration <laughs> in Kincaid's cool. Lucy, and which again, that riffs on the letter that Lucy said, uh, sends home where she had told her mom that you know, life was a slut was quite enjoyable. Thank you very much. And Holcomb argues that Lucy's sexual adventures and refusal to be bound by certain conservative and imperial mores amounts to, quote, exploring and negotiating the borders of transnational identity and thereby taking part in a counterculture to modernity. Um, Lucy is an immigrant who becomes a traveler, capsizing the hierarchies of subject agency, which is an idea I quite like in part because it's it's sort of a, a redeploying of the 18th century picturesque, but in a narrative that explores feminine, not masculine sexual agency and that concerns a colonial rather than a metropolitan figure. I don't know. Where do we start? Do we start with the interfeminine relationships? Do we start with sexuality? Well, Being so a no, slut like, is fun. Like that's so good. Yeah, <laughs> I might suggest move like is starting with sexuality and moving into the, those kind of gendered and sort of like an inner feminine uh, 
parents and relationships. One thing that I didn't mention that I do like, I do think it's important to acknowledge it's, it's a very uncomfortable passage in the novel. And I found like uh, the, the Holcomb argument generative, but I'm also like, I'm still don't quite know what to do with it. So I just kind of wanted to ask you guys about, she's describing a scene when she's back. She's a te- still a teenager on Antigua there's this other woman, uh, or sorry, this other girl, uh, if that's important here, uh, named Myrna. And there's these two fish, fishermen, uh, Mr. Thomas yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, Mr. Yeah, Matthew, and they live together. And one day, Mr. Thomas falls off his, his boat and dies. And Myrna's upset about it, and, and Lucy's like, you know, thinks it's good, you know, because yeah, I mean, this, the, the, what's happened. But then it turns out that basically, uh, Mr. Thomas was paying Myrna to molest her. I mean, that's that's what's happening. Yeah. And. This is what Lucy says about this. I, of course, had many feelings about this amazing story, all the predictable ones. But then one came and one feeling came to dominate the others. I was almost overcome with jealousy. Why had such an extraordinary thing happened to her and not to me? Why had Mr. Thomas chosen Myrna as the girl he would meet in in secret and place his middle finger up inside and not inside her, not me? Myrna spoke of this in a flat, uninterested way, as if all they had done was share a cup of fresh rainwater together. This would have become the experience of my life, the one all others would have to live up to. What a waste. It meant nothing to Myrna. She spoke only of the money, and even so, she did not have a plan for what she would do with that. For me, the money would have been beside the point. I am sure I would have given it away. I am sure, in fact, that I would have found a way to steal a shilling or two and give it to Mr. Thomas to be in Myrna's shoes. Oh, the injustice of everything. What words did Mr. Thomas use to make this arrangement with her? And why, again, had I not been worthy of hearing them? What is that about? Like, what's happening? Yeah. I, I like I'm legitimately um, like, I don't have an answer. Um, and like, I think the, you know, horror of like what what's being described, which is the sexual abuse of a of a teenager that just that feels outside of like the other kind of like sexual sexual like trajectory and, and the other relationships. But I but maybe it's not, I, I don't know. Anyway, I was just very curious what you guys made of that and how to think about what that's doing. So a little bit later, she talks about a time that she met Mr. Thomas and that he asked her how she was and she said, getting by, getting by or something like that. And says that she replied like she was her mother, like a, like a 40, like a 40 something year old woman. And that that's, that's her explanation for why he wouldn't perhaps why I don't know if she directly says it's why he wouldn't do this to her, but one can intuit that it is because if your parent is close enough to you to for you to be reflecting them so completely at that age, then that's not a child that a predator is going to target mm-hmm. because it conveys the connection that Lucy hates right so then doubling back on it seeing it through that lens it is like the protection that she gets is why she hates her mother Mm -hmm. and even the most awful thing she can't see is awful if it means that her mother is not around yeah yeah i don't know if that no i I I think that's there for sure yeah, no, that's really good. Yeah, it, yes, that e- even this like really kind of horrific thing that's happened reminds her of the family structure that she is locked in. That and that, yeah, that, yeah, um, yeah. And no, I that think that, helps. that helps. Something 
in addition to that too, which is that like her sexual curiosity is is rangy. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't actually interpret this as an assault in quite no. the way that the book makes clear that it is. Right. And so she like sort of near the end of that section, she has this like she's thinking as she's falling asleep and she says like she's thinking she says, I imagined her at the end of a long day. She had made no mention of kiss on the hair, fierce tongue in her ear or mouth, kisses on the neck, hands caressing breasts, just his hand between her legs with one finger going up inside her. So part of this is that she has taken this as like some sort of synecdoche for like a sex, like a fun sexual encounter because we are, we are really like attached to Lucy's sexual curiosity in like a good way, but this is completely taken by her in a way that the book notes is incorrect. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, we, we know, right. And, and I think that like there, you know, there's multiple sort of temporal perspectives here. One, there's the book as a whole, then there's the book imagining 19 year old Lucy. And this is Lucy recounting herself at like four, you know, 13, 14, something like that. And, and, and I mean, like we, we know, I mean, like the, what way like abusers like prey on teenage or you know, a teenage will, will think like the teenager will perceive a relationship as like consensual in a way that later in life they realize was not right. You know, and, 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 the, and, and, and that, that, yeah. And, and that like what we're reading there is like 14 year old Lucy's understanding of the situation, not older Lucy and certainly not the novel as a whole. And the scene also cuts against itself right at the end when she says, I asked her if it hurt and yeah, the way, yeah, and the way yeah. she looked at me made me feel yeah, yeah, like I was a piece of shit basically. Yeah. yeah that's like, sure. there's no surplus language, right? Like this is such a, again, this is like such a technical book in so many ways that it's like, you can't move off of the discomfort of that moment. Right. Like, and she, you're right. It's like that, that turn is so crucial, but it still doesn't like mean she doesn't have this like it's not a fantasy, but the sort of like imagining. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's entirely frank about the feelings as they pass through. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and okay, so like I, I and I thought the the first what um what you said at the uh, beginning of when we were discussing this passage, Katie, about her like the mother relationship is so sort of central to like, or it's coloring kind of all of how she's feeling about the world at that point. Like, I definitely do think that it, it's true that like the, the, the kind of like sexual adventurism is like a primary, like, you know, like tactic of resistance against like the mother figure. But I think it manifests in so many different ways. It, a lot of ways that are really kind of wonderful in that, um, like, I think something you said, uh, in, uh, like kind of our, our prep material, Katie was like how absent men really are from the, narrative mm-hmm. like like you know she's she's baggy yeah. man, but like they are not really they don't arise as characters and it's because like that she doesn't that's not you know it's like this is her journey like i mean she doesn't you know and, and uh and you know paul like paul the, the pervert artist as uh as peggy says like she you know she doesn't hesitate when she meets this other hot guy roland she doesn't hesitate to to uh you know to have, have a quick fling with him and um yeah it's it's great it's wonderful I, mean, I think i think it's like the other way around or like the inverse of that in the sense that like sex is the pleasure itself right like that's the yeah. fun thing and she gets to say to her mom living as a slut is awesome yeah yeah but they're not all they're not totally disconnect they're not disconnected yeah. from each other yeah. but it's like yeah. she's not doing this just to piss off her mom she's like oh yeah like the sex part is really great 
Yeah. But nobody ever knows why they have sex the way they do, you know? Like, it, you don't know Sorry, if it's what? to piss off your mom or not. Like, no, no one knows why they have sex the way they do or, right. like, why they feel – why no, – can you right. explain your sexuality? Right. Like, where your horniness comes from? Like, what thing in your life, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah. I think it's impossible. Well, now I'm going to be thinking about it for the rest of the year. <laughs> No, but but you're no, you're right, Katie. But that's I mean, I think you know, psychologists have eventually have come finally after like a very fraught series of centuries to like we don't we don't fucking know why, like why people are turned on by what they are, you know, like it, it's uh it, it, because it, it yeah it, it just it, it it that that lives in a very different part of your brain than the part of your brain that would be like. You know, I am mad at my mom for this reason. This is how I will actualize myself in the world. You know that that just these are not you know like they can go together, but those aren't. Yeah, they just they don't they just don't exist in the same kind of part of your psyche. I think, right? But it's so cool. Yeah, I, it's like so. I like that it's yeah. fun. You know that it's not yeah. just like some. And nor is it self destructive. And I think it's really important, yes. right? Like there's yeah. no judgment whatsoever attached to it, especially because these men are like it would be totally wrong to say or they were disposable but they're sort of like a genre you know like yeah, yeah, they yeah. fit the genre of man they have some particularities but for the most part her relationships in this book are with women the conflict is with women yeah. and i don't mean conflict in just a bad way but like no. there's no punishment for her enjoying sex no no and she talks to mariah about it too she's like i fucked a guy in a I don't know what I can't remember the what anecdote she tells her, but she's like, you know, well, and, and Mar- like and Mariah's like, like we have such like, bad Who? sex. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which which loose? I mean, it, you know, we don't. This isn't a novel that gets into like the lurid details of these relationships she's having, but like we don't get the sense that we get the sense she's having a lot of fun, and and I think like one one way she's you know maybe able to do that like Mariah like. Lewis is a character more than these other men are. And like, I think that like Lucy's sort of like, that's just not, she like what, what, what the male gaze wants or is, is just not something she is at all interested in. In a way that I think Mariah, you know, probably through the kind of bourgeois marriage structure is like sort of forced into that in a way that ultimately is very encapsulating and uh, not, doesn't leave her in a good place. Well, and Lucy gets to, witness this sort of like oh how is she training her daughters yes right so she has reflections on what mariah is like as a parent even though lucy is doing so disproportionate a burden of the parenting and so even though it's sort of like in the undertext there's these variants on mothering that are really mixed right so it's like we know in that little moment that like myrna her mother is like an evil stepmother and that Lucy's mother is, I guess, tyrannical, but also like loving in the in the version of love that I mentioned earlier, which is like you can't love anything in this book without being like both annoyed by it and hating it. And um, she says early in the second chapter that she loves Miriam, who's the daughter. Yes. Yeah. One yeah. of the four daughters. The rest of them like have names. <laughs> But that's we presume, it. We presume, yeah, like, yeah. No, they yeah. do. She names them, but that's like it's okay not yeah. to remember that that happened because yeah. it's yeah. like not that important. Yeah. Can we talk about the fake Indian thing? Yes, of course. Yeah, it's a great. That's a great scene. Also, yeah. So Tristan, you brought it up in the summary, and I sort of 
obviously just honed in on it so closely. But that moment where she's like has Indian blood. I don't mean she. I mean Mariah. Does everybody have the same fucking name in this book? Myrna, <laughs> well, Mariah, and Miriam? They all yep. are blonde, <laughs> very pink, you know. And like It's uh, just like hard to keep track of people who have such similar names. She was they were like saying goodnight to each other the way we always did with a hug and kiss, but this time we did it as if we both wished we hadn't gotten such a custom started. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. I hate you. She was yeah. almost out of the room when she turned and said, I was looking forward to telling you that I have Indian blood, that the reason I'm so good at catching fish and hunting birds and roasting corn and doing all sorts of things is that I have Indian blood. But now I don't know why. I feel I shouldn't tell you that. I feel you will take it the wrong way. And again, this is like, well, for, and then Lucy says, like, I don't go around saying she's like, she's Carib. She's one quarter Carib Indian. I don't go around saying I have some Indian blood in me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Carib sail- Indians were good sailors, but I don't like to be on the sea. I only like to look at it. So it's like she's not. Oh, she's like her investment in it is casual, right? Yeah. Like this isn't this isn't the dominating part of her. And I think we can use Kincaid's sort of reference to like I wasn't very much aware of my color. Yeah, that like skin yeah. or race as categories are a lot less important to her than things like the structures of inequality that beget them. Yeah. No, definitely. And also like white women sure like to be Indian. I mean yeah, like well, white I, people, like, but like white women have this particular attachment. Well what yeah, one thing I was gonna say is like what one of the many things that unites clueless bougie libs and fucking brain reactionaries is uh I, oh you know I'm part Indian, you know. <laughs> so like My grandmother was a Cherokee princess. princess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and, like, and I like I suspect that in the sort of like limited lib imagination and in the deranged reactionary imagination, that is filling slightly different needs. But I also think there's a fuck of a lot of overlap too. You know, like um, in part, it sort of absolves you of like uh, you know attempts to absolve you for the guilt of colonial. It's like oh, see, so I actually see this is part me. But it's also asserting a version of nativism that is like yes, related yeah. to native, right? So it's yes. like oh. Like we've, I'm a part of the thing that's been here since the outset as it's imagined, right? So it's like, this is actually like a oddly sort of like, sorry, blood and soily way of like asserting nationhood. Yeah. Yeah. It's saying like, this is why I'm on top. It's right that I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's all is right with the world and with me. And the best natives are always whites like that. That's like an ongoing trope of American literary history, right? Like from the last of the Mohicans forward. Right, right. I mean, especially men like that's that's really the thing is like men, white men make the best Indians. (laughs) And I got so pissed earlier because I was looking for an audio recording and I was like, okay, world can tell me where the audio recording, the audio archival recordings are. And I type. Osage in and then I hit the space bar and the first thing that comes up is Osage murders uh, yeah, because of the yeah. book that came out four years ago and now is being made into a movie right by Martin Scorsese yep of course of course I'm so uh, excited links. for that movie to come out 
all the time. Yeah. Oh, you're Osage like that movie? Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, just like it. Oh, fuck. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's going to be so much fun for you. Isn't it going to be great? I'm just like super jazzed. Uh, Jesus. Yep. Well, hey, no, like, so like one thing I was just thinking about, like, um, the function that it fills Mariah, you're right. Megan, the blood and soil thing. Absolutely. And I think that that's the overtly reactionary fantasy of like Indianness. But I think this sort of like lib imagination too, is this like very breezy narrative of like reconciliation and that like the sort of violence of the past can be neatly contained, but, but see, like we can celebrate this and it's like, while you have a fucking house in Westchester, New York, and on the Great yeah. Lakes, and a pl- you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, so. That's some, like, version of, like, the, what they imagine to be, like, deep identity or, like, real yes. identity, which is, like, yeah. blood. Yeah. And and so that's, like, in the imagination of this character in this book, it, like, provides some kind of mutual attachment, right? So it's yeah. like, if you knew that I was Indian, you would understand this fundamental thing about me. And it's like, hmm, have, you, have you met the person that you're talking to have you met her she doesn't yeah. seem like she'd be super impressed yeah yeah and in fact no she hasn't met her fair she has not <laughs> met her actually yeah yeah well the, yeah the the that that lie the, the visitor because she seems like she's just passing through which is so condescending to gross in so many ways but it also it just like they're you know like they claim to want to like know lucy but they like for the very outset are like sort of like contain and like put you know they're creating this identity for her that like has no relationship to like the you know well quote unquote actual person you know well and she doesn't talk about herself in the way that they talk about themselves and when she tells them this dream they're like oh let me pathologize this instantly Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Like, and I'd like, like Lewis's fucking weird ass story about, oh, I had an uncle who raised monkeys in Canada and he got so into raising the monkeys that he, uh, he couldn't like be around other people. It's like, okay, man, that's a, cool. that's a weird story. A cool dude. story. Yeah. Now that we're saying stuff, I'm going to say this thing. Yeah. He said the weirder thing. Like, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, he definitely said the weirder thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe we have to cut it short. We should do the game, but. Ugh, this book is so good. I know it's so good. Yeah, it's really. Is this good. about mowing down daffodils with a scythe? Because I am <laughs> here for that. I I wish I wish it were now, but it's it. I was thinking about divorce so much that it's about this game's about divorce. Okay. Divorce. It's changed through the ages. So, and I think that everyone has a little bit of the essence of divorce in them. You know. Just that essence. You don't have to get one to have the essence in you. So I have a quiz to tell you if you are in 18th, 19th, or 20th century divorce. Okay. Awesome. Does it, does, did it require an act of parliament? I was wondering that <laughs> same thing. Am I the prince regent? I sure yeah. hope not. Yeah. Is my life or head in danger now? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Did the Pope okay this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is, the answer what is, is always say? no. Yeah. It's very bad. So which of these, which of the following is the most compelling reason to get a divorce? A, spouse refused to live on my commune with the sinister mesmerist. (laughs) B, she couldn't wait for me to get back from my ocean voyage where I was so dehydrated my pee was dust and I fucked a seagull. (laughs) Or C, 
ennui, too many new inventions, got too horny for a poster of a magician with electricity coming out of his fingers. <laughs> a. Yeah, the the the, the commune. You gotta come the, with me to the, the commune. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, I, I mean, like I are. I I didn't spend 28 years wearing goat skin on this, this <laughs> island and eating, yeah, eating tortoise and getting violently ill for the, for, for, for my wife to run around with a new, so I'll, I'll take the, the salty sea captain one. I love it. I love Just because I ate all I those sh- raw turtle eggs doesn't yeah. mean you can reject me. <laughs> How do you think Robinson Crusoe smelled? <laughs> I don't want to. Oh. I think we've reflected on this enough. Yeah. 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 Even, yeah. Even if yeah. we had, it's too much. <laughs> um, okay. So question number two. Which of these do you find to be the best divorced fridge contents? It's kind of empty. A, beaver tail vittles several of my own teeth. Mm-hmm. B, Miracle elixirs, underpants in freezer to prevent horniness, in addition to the milk for cereal, which also prevents horniness. C, sympathy casseroles and one day supply of cigarettes, three cartons. Three. I haven't smoked in years and years, but if I got divorced, I probably would. Yeah, I'll take I'll take the elixirs. Um, and the, it's, it's very hot right now. So actually frozen underpants. So it's not the end of the world. Bad, you know? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I feel like this. I feel like, I feel like I'm typing myself as a pure, as, as a Puritan sea captain right now. You know? <laughs> 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 well, so we, we, have a few, we have, we have two more questions to go. Okay. So uh, don't pigeonhole yourself. I feel just like yet. a Mary McCarthy, uh, Vassar girl to be divorcee. Yeah, no, that's def- <laughs> That's definitely what you're working on for sure. Okay. How long should a divorce beard be? <laughs> a, medium, B, long, or C, birdhouse? <laughs> uh, okay. Hey, all right. I, so I feel like I'm getting, I'm, I'm seeing the centuries pretty clearly here. The medium was the 20th. <laughs> the long one is like some Victorian dipshit. The birdhouse is like, yeah, I, I, the, unfortunately the ship didn't have it, like with the 50 trips I made to the ship that stayed there that I couldn't find a razor. So I just, <laughs> wait, doesn't, I me. think he does have a razor though, right? Yeah, he does. But I think he stopped. I think he stops using it, or at least in the illustration. He has a mustache. You're, yes, actually, he's very well groomed considering he doesn't gonna, otherwise I was going to say, why is mustache not on this list? That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's a good question. Well, well, we're go- we'll say that my shipwreck did not have uh, <laughs> a razor, so I've got birds living in there, which means I also have dinner. <laughs> I have dinner living in my beard, oh. you know. <laughs> I'm going to say medium because mustache isn't on the list, and that upsets me. Okay, so Tristan is happy and Megan is sad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, Uh, the kids, the kids. What do we do? Ah, Uh, A, let them play in a plastic dry cleaning bag. They'll figure it out. (laughs) B, thine sins have brought this upon thee. For children are wicked, incredibly rude, and drink Mm -hmm. too much juice to be good for anyone. Mm -hmm. Sugar's deadly. She should all go keto. Um, or C, stick some booze and pork lard in a baby bottle and the little angels won't notice a thing. And it doesn't matter that your son is 17. You can still do this. <laughs> oh, 
The answer is clearly whiskey and lard. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like, the, like I, it is true. Children are evil. Uh, I mean, I, you know, and and uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with Jonathan Edwards on that. Um, but I, you know, the 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 elixir and the 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 lard in a bottle. I mean, that that's just that's how you raise a kid. I mean, that's that's just the correct yeah. way of doing it. So mm-hmm. we both have experience. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. we 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 speak, we speak from experience. Our children are both still alive. They're they're living yeah. their lives. They're, they're fine. Yes, they're fine. <laughs> you know, they're average, as we've discussed. They're the genre of children. Yeah. <laughs> they're the genre of children. Okay, are you ready to find out which type of divorce you are? Yes. 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 Okay, so this is surprise. So Megan, no surprises here. You're a twentieth century divorce. Okay. It's not easy to break That's- the ketubah, but it can be done. <laughs> so that's the bit that lives inside you. Tristan, a 19th century divorce oh. lives inside of you. Oh. All yeah, right. I was it was really on the line between 18th and 19th, but um your la- if your last question uh, tipped you. Is this the Bertha oh. woman in the attic divorce? Yeah, oh wow, it could be that, but I actually think too that uh, the what's what I'm I'm envisioning doing a 19th century divorce is uh, actually I'm, I I feel like I can feel like I can rec- recover the 18th century because I'm going to rise in Parliament, Mister Speaker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gone 28 years, and yet you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, adultery it, is uh, one of the reasons you're allowed to get divorced, right? And yeah, no, actually, that I think that is true. You would, you could, yes, you could if 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 you could prove adultery, and if you couldn't prove that, then you had to get Parliament to actually pass a fucking law saying that your marriage had never existed. So what you're like, saying is you're going to send around a private investigator around Robinson Crusoe's wife's house with a camera taking yes, pictures. Robinson, yes. Yes, 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 Robin. Yes, Robinson yes. Crusoe's wife. Oh my God, that poor she. She. We. I. We will never. I will never subject you guys to the further adventures of Robinson Crusoe. But she appears for like five <gasps> no. pages or oh. something like that. Please, poor, like, poor, poor woman. Poor, poor woman. He really was fine stopping where he stopped. He could have stopped earlier, as far as I'm concerned. He could, but then you would have never gotten to the serious reflections of the light, on the life of Robinson Crusoe with his vision of the angelic world, where it gets real <laughs> fucking weird. Like you think Crusoe's weird, you think the further adventures are weird. Like Crus Defoe doing like Puritan hours, and like it's like my alter ego has like given me this great insight into the Pilgrim's. Pro- it's horrible. Anyway, but sounds sounds irresistible. And these yeah, are people actually, who made would, a living as writing. <laughs> you would be down, Katie. <laughs> totally down. Okay. So, um, yeah. Thanks, guys. This has been Better Than Dead. You can find me on Twitter at Tusslersaurus, Tristan at DJ Schweiger, Katie at Katie Crywo. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Better Ed Pod and email us at Better Ed Podcast at gmail.com. But only if you want to tell us the meanest thing you've ever said to your mom, because we kind of really <laughs> want to know. Um, <laughs> Our intro music is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Next week we have Wheeland and then a short little season four wrap up after that. And we will be back for a season five. Thanks, comrades. <laughs> <laughs>